0: If you don't own a Bible, there are Bibles in the back you can always grab, I always say that. Uh, thank you guys for taking those and using those. Um, they're our gift to you, so please feel free not to feel like you have to just borrow it for the service, but keep it and, uh, and study it throughout the week um, as we go through Luke. Um, Let's just, uh, I don't know how your morning started out, mine started out, started out insane. The hard drive uh, broke on my computer and wouldn't print, so I don't know how that happens. Uh, hardware could just disappear. So that happened to me about an hour ago, and eventually we found other ways to monkey the system, so, uh, and then a few other things occurred. So let's just, let's ask God for, for focus, right? And attentiveness, uh, we all need it. Uh, I say every week we all come in here, uh, usually in given weeks, with just a variety of things, uh, fighting for attention, fighting for affections, fighting for thoughts, uh, so we desperately need him. So let's just let's appeal to him and ask him to give us a straight path today. God, thank you that you're a good God that loves to forgive sinners, that loves to extend grace. God, thank you that you have offered a way to salvation, Lord, that is so good and so perfect. Lord, we get no boasting. We get no merits for it. Uh, all that we get to do is celebrate you. For all that you've given us in your son father thank you for your word thank you that we get to see it this morning thank you that we get to look at it and study it may it nourish us well may it serve our hearts in a ways and correct us in ways that might sting but be fruitful god that so we might be coal that turns into jewels thank you for this family you've established and are establishing thank you for the things you're doing here we marvel at your kindness Uh, Keep us even today as we read and study and sing and share and pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, Luke chapter 17. We are uh, moving along, and here's where we just pick up this morning in Luke. If you're wondering kind of where you're, uh, if you're new to Luke or you're new to this whole study, uh, first just follow up on the last two years of sermons, but uh, here's kind of where we're going to land this morning. Jesus has been preaching, teaching, he's been going town to town, village to village, telling and proclaiming what's known as the kingdom of God. Now the kingdom of God is basically just this message that there's there's a kingdom and it's perfect and it has a perfect king, but you can't enter that kingdom through merits, through ceremonies, through works, but through faith alone in the king who sent his son, King Jesus, to die and ransom us as a payment for sin, give us reconciliation with God, pay our debt for us, give us the righteousness that we couldn't earn on our own. Uh, So it's it's a glorious kingdom. So he's been proclaiming this, and all the while I've been saying there's been this rift occurring with the religious because the religious were teaching that the way to enter this kingdom was through ceremonies and through rites and through heritage. And Jesus continually shows us that it's not through your birth, it's through through rebirth, okay? And so this morning, um, as Jesus has been laying before us weighty realities, weighty truths, uh, he's been warning the religious of judgment, of eternity, because they were steering people away from the truths of Christ. And that's why um, last week we saw him give a pretty weighty parable and illustration on hell, because he was trying to warn the religious that, hey, you're going to end up here and you're going to send others here through what you're preaching and teaching if you don't understand what you're preaching and teaching is error and it needs to be corrected. And so um, here we have Jesus constantly and consistently doing that. And here he's going to turn to his disciples, he's going to give them a word of encouragement, and a word of exhortation as they've been kind of eavesdropping in all these conversations. So I always say a really good way to read the Gospels is just remember there's usually lots of people listening on what you're reading, okay? So, so as you're reading him, kind of talk to the Pharisees and then move to the disciples and move to crowds. There are all sorts of people that are listening to Jesus in these particular environments. And so in this one he, Luke, gives us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he shows us that he's going to turn to his disciples and say something. So uh, verse 1 of chapter 17, Luke writes This and he said, That's Jesus said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. Okay, out of the gate. Anyone else just so thankful that Jesus said, Temptations are sure to come? Right? You okay with that? You you thankful for that? Because that means now all of a sudden we're all in the same pot, right? We're all in the same good family, good company, that temptations are going to come. It's inevitable. It's part of this sin-stained, broken, fractured world where Genesis 3 on, there is sin indwelling you and sin coming at you, not just through satanic forces and adversaries, but through your own flesh and through the sin that indwells you. And so here we see that these temptations are sure to come, and Jesus shows not if they come, but when they come. Right? So, so you're going to be faced with these, these lurings away from God's good design daily in your life. And, and here's the interesting thing that, that is noted here is, um, and the one thing you'll learn as you read the Gospels in other places is um, temptation is not sin, it's giving way to temptation that's sin. Okay, so Jesus, right, our high priest, he lived in every way without weakness, though, without, um, without sinning, right? He was tempted, right, in every way that we are, but he never gave into that sin. James will tell you that temptation is not sin, but when you give in to that temptation and succumb to its lustful, sinful, deceitful intent, it gives birth to what's called sin. And so these temptations that are going to come at us, okay, that's not sin, Okay, sin is when you give way to that thing that tempts you away from all that is good and glorious in the cross of Jesus Christ. And um, as he says this, Jesus goes, look, I know temptations are bound to come, so um, they're gonna come unknowingly and knowingly, right? I mean, the unknowing ones are, you know, you walking, you can't walk into a convenience store aisle anymore without trying to like watch your eyes, right? It's like, what in the world are they putting on here now, right, and then you've got knowing ones where you seek it out, you search it out, you look for it, sin that you intentionally go after, of so these two different types of sins that kind of come at us. But the idea here that Jesus is getting at is sin will come at you, but it should never come through you. That's his concern. His concern is when it comes through, when, when you're the active agent leading somebody to stumble and walk away from the truth that is in Jesus Christ. He's saying, so sin's going to come at you, but make sure it doesn't come through you. And um, here he shows this. And the kind of wording, if you actually read the, just how it's written, it's basically to put a stumbling block in front of somebody so it trips them up. Okay, so don't do anything that's going to trip somebody up and cause them to sin or, or stumble. And um, Jesus basically is talking about two dangers here. Um, one clear danger he's talking about here is uh, the reality of false teachers. Okay, somebody who is clearly steering you away from the truths of Jesus Christ. So the reason he's clearly talking about this as one of the dangers is because um, false teachers were rampant. He's giving a strong word against these very Pharisees that were giving false teaching. Right, so that's why he gives this millstone analogy. He goes, man, listen, if you're going to keep, you know, taking people away from Christ, listen, these religious leaders weren't causing people just to, like, stumble in little sins. Like, they were causing them to reject the truth of the kingdom of God being for you only and solely through the work of the Redeemer, the substitute for you, which is Jesus. So they were causing people to reject the truths of Jesus Christ. That's why he's so concerned and so he says, hey, it's better than a millstone be put on your neck and I drown you and prevent you from leading people to reject Jesus than put a life jacket on you to save you. That's a, that's a strong word from loving Jesus because he cares so much about the truth that people are hearing, they're not being steered away in false teaching but driven to the truth in truthful teaching. So this is the first type of thing he says and that's why he says pay attention to yourselves if you look at almost every place this is used in the New Testament, it's almost always identified with false teaching. Almost always. So you can go back to Luke chapter 12 where he says, hey, beware of the Pharisees. Watch out for the Pharisees. The leaven, right, they're like these people that permeate the dough and then it spreads through everything. So you get this little bit of false teaching that it spreads everywhere. You can go back to, or actually forward to uh, Acts where Paul's talking to the Ephesian elders on the beach and he's about to leave them. How does he exhort them? Hey, watch out. Hey, beware. False teachers will rise up from within you and try to sway you away from the truth. So Jesus is clearly talking about the idea of false. teaching here. He's clearly saying, hey, pay attention to yourselves. Be careful of who you listen to. Be careful of what you let seep into your theology. Listen to what they say about Jesus Christ. Listen to what they say about sin and wrath and hell and heaven and works and merits and ceremonies. Pay attention, right? Pay attention to yourselves. Listen well. But the other danger is in relation to inside behavior. In the local family of faith. He's going to talk about this. This When you're a part of a local church like this, there's also a danger in you leading others to sin and leading others astray. And this is why Jesus says here, don't do anything that would cause a brother or sister to stumble, especially these little ones. Now, there is debate across the camp of what this actually means. I think the one that makes most logic sense is that these are just the spiritually immature in the faith. These are the newborn infants. These are those who are growing up in salvation, learning the things of God. Hey, especially don't teach them something that's an error because they're they're readily susceptible to these other types of teachings. You'll see in Matthew 18 a total parallel text where he talks about the same thing and uses the same language to talk about new infants in the faith, those who are growing up into Christ, those who are learning things of salvation. So Jesus is speaking about the young in faith here and saying, hey, man, they're young in their spiritual development. Be careful of what you do that might cause them to stumble. You might put a stumbling block in front of them. This is why uh, Romans 14 is going to gladly say that the strong have an obligation to help the weak. If, if, if you're in this room, and, and what that means is you're your brother's keeper, in case you were wondering. Like that's on you as a mature Christian in the faith. That as you work, as you walk, as you live, you need to operate and live in such a way that you might not cause a younger person in the faith to stumble. Now here's just a a super practical question that um, maybe you've heard before that I love to ask all the time, and it's very simple, and it's in regards to Christian freedoms. Because here's what I find. Most people go, well, I'm free in Christ. They either just swing to one side, or they just... Basically use a trump card for their sin in the name of freedom in Christ. And then the other side's like, you know, super legalistic. You can't touch a beer. You can't touch anything that touched by a sinner. And all of a sudden you're like caught on you and the TV's has Satan in it. So you can go on two crazy tangents in both of these. But here's just a really good, helpful question just to kind of moderate that. Um, and it's very simply, am by me doing this, am I causing anyone who's witnessing this to fall into sin? I'm not talking about sinful behavior. I'm talking about the freedoms. I'm talking about the areas that aren't necessarily clear because the scriptures are going to say, right, all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. That's why um, we have to consider when scripture exhorts us that the strong carry the burdens of the weak. That means there are many times for you who are more mature in the faith in here who are going to die to your freedoms out of love for your brother or sister. You're gonna do that more regularly. In other words, every time, First Corinthians 9 and other places where you see Paul use his freedoms, it's always he uses freedoms out of love for the other. You're concerned more for the good of your brother or sister than your own self than your selfish wants, things that you're even free to do. That's why I never sit around and tell people what outright level of movie they can or cannot watch, and I don't tell them they can't touch a beer or pick up a beer, but I will say you need to be super careful what you do those things around, if they're within the realms of spirituality that are righteous, that you're not causing somebody else to fall into sin. You need to watch what you do. You have an obligation for that. It's necessary for you to do that. That's why I'll never call those things wicked, but I'll say you're internally wicked. So you got to be careful, even with motives and, and wants. But you need to be aware of those who are around you. A good question is, is it, not is it free, but is it wise? And here is why this is so important. People will see your maturity in the faith, and they'll use your maturity in the faith as a trump card for them to sin. Well, I saw so-and-so doing it, and then they'll exceed it and take it to a place it was never meant to be, and then you find yourself as the culprit because sin came through you in a way that God never designed it. Um, the, 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 this is the, the classic guy I've, <laughs> I've had conversations with right where uh, they say they want to go do Bible studies in the bars and I always ask them well, well what, what, what do you do there I mean you're going to go share your faith there. you just came out of AA like five weeks ago that's probably not smart and every time Jesus went in the tax collector and sinner's bar he rebuked everyone in the room where everybody got saved so which one are you doing and they're usually like well neither okay then that's probably not wise right that's probably not for you it's probably not something, a way you're gifted or wired, so we have to be careful of those things because it's an unavoidable fact that in a sinful, fallen world, these temptations are going to come, and this is why Jesus tells us now to live in such a way to where we can engage and be engaged over these temptations. Look at what he says in verse three. He just continues this thought. If your brother sins, he's moving now internally to the family of faith, rebuke him. No one likes that word, by the way. And if he repents... The rebuker doesn't like that word. Forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Okay, so he's talking about those inside the family of faith. Now, the reason that's important to understand is I don't know if you've tried it, but rebuking a total stranger seldom works, okay? So, so you just find some street and just outright rebuke him, but you'll probably get punched in the face. That, that's not that's not helpful. So, he's talking about inside the family of faith, inside among brothers and sisters that love the God that you love, that serve the God that you serve, that that want to walk in righteousness, that want to pursue his name. Okay, that's that's who he's talking about. We've outlined this extensively in our membership class. If you've taken our cover that membership class, we walk through Matthew 18 and what it means to engage a brother or sister, and how to do that, and when to do that, so I'm not gonna repeat all of that, but here, Jesus is showing, in a world of temptations and sin, inevitably, you're gonna get sinned against, and you're gonna sin against others. Right in this room. Like, that's going to happen. Right, so so like any family has its dysfunction, so does the church of Jesus Christ. And listen, those people that say, I just wanna get back to the early church, read the letters of the early church. Dysfunction. Every letter is written to straighten them out. So I laugh when people say, "We just back how the early church used to do it." Well, that's that's who we are. So you're there. Here we are, early church, right? Growing in grace, stumbling over one another, pleading for grace from Jesus Christ as we learn to walk in rightness together. And um, here Jesus starts out by saying, "If someone sins against you, rebuke him." Now, I know that even the word rebuke right now, some of you are just checking out. Like, oh, I knew this. This is where the gavel gets slammed. And no, here, Let me say what it does mean and what it doesn't mean. Um, here's what it does mean. You talk to them and not about them. I'm going to say that again because some of you guys are not going to write that in your notes. You talk to them. You don't talk about them. This is a going to that person And discussing the way that you've been offended or the offense that's been made. We don't like gossip. We don't like slander. We don't like all the little whispers. Just go talk to them. Now That's just gone in our culture. Don't talk to them. Talk to everybody else about them. But biblically, we're called as a faith family to go and address and meet with and talk to that person. You take time to pray how this would be helpful, how this would be grace-giving, wise, but honest and truthful. It's done humbly, lovingly, strongly, truthfully, and let me encourage you, it's done after you've examined your own heart. Please, save yourself heartache. Like, don't just rail out and lash out in the moment of rage and anger. Let your heart settle. Take time to pray. Is this an offense that Peter's just saying, hey, a love covers a multitude of sins, or is this a sin that I need to rebuke, I need to step into, I need to engage that? Ask for wisdom for that. Because if you're just trying to get at somebody, your rebuke will not be helpful, right? If you just got this like inward aggression towards someone, you're like waiting for the one time to pounce on them and they do one thing and then you go after them to rebuke them, like that's not what God would say. He'd say first, right, take care of the log that's in your eye and then go look at the speck in your brother's eye. So we take time to repent of our own hearts and then we go and talk to the person who we feel offended us. That's what rebuking is. Here's what rebuking is not. Rebuking is not shaming them. Rebuking is not, hey, let me give you the list of all the reasons why I'm better than you, and here's the reasons you don't fit that category. Rebuking is none of those things. Actually, if you look at the totality of the New Testament, we're to operate as a people... And to rebuke a brother or sister is birthed from this amazing, genuine, overflowing covenant love to Christ to where we realize what happens when sin is full grown. So you see the destruction, you see the pain, you see the agony, you have a long view, you see what's ahead, and that's what gives you desire to even engage that person in the first place. Because I care about your soul. I care about you. I care about where that could lead you. I care about what this could do to the family of faith. And we walk rightly in that. Um, This is how life works in the local church. You'll see it throughout the scriptures because we believe that a divine part in God designing his saints to live and operate within one another is this healthy, amazing realm where God puts protection through the community of faith. So we believe that, that life in isolation will wither and destroy you and life in community will restore you and protect you. Right, and I've seen it consistently, right? The person who just runs from the church, runs from the faith, runs from any sort of accountability community, and they just start withering, and they come back, oh man, where were you guys? I and mean, what happened? Right now, some of it is on us to go after them, and, but if you keep pushing, 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 at some point you go, okay, well, you can keep running, but the people who stay, who dig deep, who walk in hard situations, in hard relationships, and get to see joy in unexpected places through the gospel, birthing and bursting through are the people who walk and mature, and grow the greatest. Historically, we've seen it. Historically, you'll always see it. It's a profound reality that God gives us as his covenant people to do this and to walk. So temptation is sure to come And because when it comes, if it takes root, it grows to sin. And because we know when it grows into sin, it brings shame, it brings destruction, it brings agony. We want to engage that in love. That's why, that's why we care about it. That's why we want to walk in that, Um, and and please hear me. I said this. Not every sin is to be rebuked. Like sometimes I give these sermons, and all of a sudden I get like ten emails from the, the person. All of a sudden, everybody got phone calls. Like, well, I don't know, I didn't say hi to them today, so they rebuked me. Well, that's just a quirk or a mistake. Like, you don't rebuke people for that. I mean, I remember years ago at my other church that I was a pastor at before we moved here, I mean, I remember having a guy tell me when I outright rebuke and held her because he didn't say hi to him. I was like, well, maybe you should go say hi to him. Like, that's not like him actively, aggressively going against you. That's just him not seeing you. <laughs> So let's be careful in the realms of, hey, Peter says, hey, love's going to cover that. Because here, here's the thing. If you rebuke every sin in your marriage and in your children, like, no one's making it, right? No, no marriage will survive. Your kids won't survive if there's never a, hey, love's going to cover that. Love's going to forgive that. I'm not going to engage that. <laughs> so we got to ask God for great wisdom. Can you imagine that circus? Can you imagine that in here in this church? I don't know, man, I didn't like your tone the other day. Okay, okay. well, I didn't mean that, you know, and then, then it comes up again, and then I didn't like your shoe color. I just, it was offensive to me. You know, I, I didn't like the way the coffee tasted. You didn't make coffee right. I mean, I, we've seen it, I've, I, honestly. So we've got to be careful how we walk in the rights of rebukes. These are clear, objective offenses that have f- shamed the name of Christ and shamed you to where you need to engage those things, where they've hurt. And you have a right to feel hurt, right to feel angry, right to feel upset, and you go because you care about what sin can do, what sin can do to the family of faith. And understand, here's the divide Jesus is trying to depict. Here's, Here's why he's saying this. The Pharisees didn't care about restoration. The Pharisees didn't care about sinners. They loved judging sinners. They rebuked out of hatred, not love. They were not about restoration. They were about damnation. They actually enjoyed seeing people on their pathway to hell that were not doing and abiding to what they were doing and abiding in. So Jesus is trying to show a separation here. You got two different ways of living and it starts from where it's birthed from in our hearts. And then Jesus says, if you rebuke them, the offender should repent. Repent. We've taught a lot about, about repentance. The one who sins against should repent. The one who sinned against should repent. The one who sinned against is called to forgive. Now, um, we've talked about repentance a lot, so I'm not going to redo all of this, but it's a turning from sin. It's godly sorrow. It's not just trying to clean your conscience. It's not being caught, it's coming clean, it's being real, it's not justifying it, saying, Hey, this is what I did. I'm really sorry for that. I'm grieved because it grieves you. It tames, it taints not only the name and image and renown of Jesus, but it taints my soul as an image bearer with you. It harms what's happening here so I'm sorry for that will you forgive me for that that's repentance right 2 Corinthians 7 is a great place to go verse 10 where it talks about worldly sorrow and godly sorrow right? godly sorrow is the one that, that turns from that sin and desires to change and walk differently and worldly sorrow just keeps avoiding the sin and trying not to do it so it says the person should repent they seek to walk new with Jesus and then Jesus says if they repent forgive them Now, the reason I want to stop here for a little bit is because if we're honest, what I've seen in counseling is most people don't genuinely want the person to repent because they want to keep them in their debt. Because if they repent, then they're called to forgive. I think a lot of us, if we're honest, the proclivity of our human heart is, I hope he just gets back so I can just keep punishing him. So I can keep holding on to my grudge. I can keep belittling him. And the scriptures show That Jesus says if they repent, forgive them. We don't hold grudges, we don't look at people with disdain, we don't belittle them. As eager as we are to confront people in sin, we're just as eager to forgive them of their sin. Let me just say this because I've seen this a lot in counseling over and over. If you choose unforgiveness, it will always lead to bitterness. And it will not free you, it will control you. And here's the thing the root that is in the other person who hurt you, you'll become just like them, and that same root's going to take root in you. Over and over and over. I see it all the time. Withholding forgiveness, not showing mercy, not being gracious, will cause you and create in you to be the very one that you disdain and you rebuke. So be careful. Be careful that you don't hold on to that. Let me just say what forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not denying a wrongdoing. It's not going, oh, didn't happen. No, it did happen. It hurt. It was painful. It was maybe destructive. Forgiveness is not ceasing to feel pain. Some of you guys have been horrifically offended and hurt. The pain's just not gonna evaporate. Forgiveness is not forgetting. I have to say this because we always say, well, you know, Jesus forgives and forgets, that whole language, right? Well, well, God doesn't forget in the sense that it evaporates from his conscience. He's all-knowing. When he sees a sin and forgives a sin, he chooses not to interact with you based upon what you did. He chooses to interact with you based on what his son did. Right, So he doesn't just erase it, but he chooses in a way to operate with you in a way he doesn't hold you in his debt. In the same way, forgiving somebody is not releasing them from your debt and choosing not to operate with them based upon what they did, but based upon what Christ has done for you. That's forgiveness. That's biblical forgiveness. That's how we forgive. That's what enables us to forgive. So you can't forgive on sheer willpower. Like you have to forgive based upon all that you've received in Christ, knowing your debt was much bigger than theirs. You stand in a much greater treason against the hallowed name of God. And so when he forgives you and chooses to forgive you, not forgetting your sin, but saying I'm going to treat you, and interact with you based upon what my son does and not what you did in the past, present, future, we mimic that. We ask God for help to do that and live in that and operate in that way as the people of God. God. And according to Jesus, and this is the hardest part, (laughs) it's not a one-time event. If he comes back seven times in the same day, I'm like, come on, Jesus. Seven times maybe in the same year. No, if he comes back seven times in the same day saying, ah, I repent, I, what? You should forgive him. What he's saying is your forgiveness should be limitless. Seven times a day is, look, at the rabbis used to say, hey, if you forgive somebody like three times in a day, you're super holy. So he was just showing, hey, the Christian expectations to exceed the rabbinic expectation because you were forgiven of a greater rebellion against a much greater God. Your offense is massive. It's inevitable. It's infinite. What you're accruing, you cannot get out of. So because you've been forgiven much, you forgive limitlessly. You forgive much. Let the measure of God's forgiveness towards you in Christ be the same measure of forgiveness towards others. It's a challenge, right? That is hard. Jesus is showing the way that we live is differently from the way others live. That's why, you know what, uh, we forgive knowing sometimes it's gonna take a while before you you see the repentance of the fruit you'd like to see. In the path to repentance and forgiveness, you're gracious, you're merciful. Maybe you wanna see more You say, God, just do your work and your time. Help there be a trajectory. Help there to be movement. That's why we can only forgive because we're marked by a greater forgiveness. Guys, I know in theory we understand this, but it's somewhere we have to sit. I mean, no sin that's ever committed against you, and I realize there are some horrific ways people have sinned and scarred and marked you. But no sin committed against you will ever compare to the sin and rebellion and treason we've committed against a hallowed, holy God. It just won't. And what that reveals is our naivety to our sin, the true depth of it, and our naivety to the true, hallowed holiness of God. And when God starts to show us that chasm, then it grows in us a big heart that swells with forgiveness. And um, that's why what you're doing with you, when you withhold forgiveness, that's why this is what you're doing. You're basically viewing the lens, viewing the world, viewing the gospel through a lens that says, well, I'm outside of somehow the free-giveness and mercy of Jesus Christ. Because I'm outside of that, now other people really need that. And so when you look at people, you go, well, I'm better than them. I haven't done what they did. You forget that you actually did we all have to God himself. We've all done it. And so he puts everybody in the same camp. Now, I love this. um, As he's showing a mark of true holiness in the Christian and their eagerness to forgive, to be gracious, to be merciful. You see this in Colossians 3. I love this passage. Colossians 3, Paul talks about this. He says, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with each other, and forgive whatever grievances you have against one another. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Forgive. So so what you see here and everywhere in scripture is the foundational component to allow you to walk in forgiveness, allow you to walk in humility, allow you to walk in meekness, allow you to walk in patience. The foundational component is always God's love towards you in Jesus Christ. He marks you first and says, hey, you're chosen, you're holy, you're dearly loved by God. Can't you just operate this way? Can't you just walk this way? Actually, the literal wording of bear with means to put up with. I love that. So God's going, can't you just put up with each other? Like, put. Why? Why can you put up with each other? Because you're dearly loved by God. You're secure and eternal family. You've been forgiven of all your debt. Wrath doesn't hang over you anymore. His mercy, kindness, patience, humility is crazy and astounding. So can't you guys at least try to just deal with each other? That's what he's saying. Remember first your identity vertically. Remember all that you have, all that you are, and then walk horizontally, rightly, with others side by side. Oh, boy, do we need the Lord's help. And I love it because the apostles even realize we need help. Look at verse 5. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. That's going, hey, I need help. This is tough. What you just rolled out for me is not natural. It's contrary to my sin nature. It's contrary to all the religious patterns that are being taught. It says increase, increase our faith. And the Lord said, I love it, Jesus just agrees. Yep. If you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. They're going, Jesus, this stuff is hard. Isn't it great when people agree with your heart in Scripture? We can see yourself as people walking with Jesus, they're listening to this going, man, this is very difficult. Man, to receive rebuke, to forgive others I don't want to forgive, to try to watch my life and doctrine closely so I don't cause a younger brother or sister to stumble in the faith, all the while restoring and restoring and restoring and forgiving and forgiving, and all the while they might keep sinning against me over and over and over, all the while extending forgiveness, forgiveness, forgiveness. This is difficult. Increase my faith. I need some help. I need help with this. And Jesus simply agrees and said, yes, if you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. That's an astounding thing. To uproot a mulberry tree? People knew mulberry trees to have roots that were like 600 feet down in the ground. That was like impossible. It needed to be supernaturally done. A mustard seed was one of the smallest seeds in Israel you could find. It would grow to a bush that was almost 15 feet by 15 feet. Jesus' lesson is really simple for us. The Christian life is a willful, constant trust in him and his greater power and his greater ability to do supernaturally through you what you can't do humanly. That's the Christian life. You wanna try to do verses one through four on willpower? Ain't gonna happen. You might go for a season, you'll run out of steam, hit a wall, and then just resort to just bitterness and frustration. But he's showing here that, no, no, what you need is something outside of you. Here's what I want you to make sure you understand this text. He's not telling them to do pointless things. I've heard this text really abused. He's not telling them to go out and do magic tricks and wow people. Increase their faith and then do something nuts like that. Rip up that tree and replant the seed. That could never happen. He's not telling you that. He's telling you to increase your trust and understanding of what he does through you. You have the indwelling power of God. So continue to trust and believe that, that you can forgive, that you can exhort, that you can restore, that you can walk in mercy, that this can be done in and through you. He's telling them to drive their hearts and minds by faith into the truth of God, who he is. This is 2 Corinthians, man. When I'm weak, he's really strong. Ephesians 6, be strong in, finally, not you, be strong in the Lord. God, help me to be strong in you and your might. Remind me that I'm a new citizen of a new kingdom, of a new creation. I'm indwelt by a supernatural Holy Spirit of God so that I can do what I humanly could not do. Help me with this. Increase my faith, increase my trust in this. And he's basically saying if you have the courage to do that and the ability to do that, powerful things can occur. Powerful things can happen like you uprooting, uprooting a mulberry bush and casting it into the ocean. You're gonna see restoration in relationships you never thought you could see. You're gonna see the gospel take root in marriage in the way that you never thought you could see. But you have to increase your faith in the risen Christ and all that he accomplishes for you. That people are not in your debt. You were in God's debt, and he forgave you freely of no charge. So if you remember that and drive your mind into that, then you're going to start uprooting mulberry trees in your life. You're not literally going to grab the mulberry tree. And he always uses things just as examples. So there was probably a mulberry tree right next to him. That's why when he says, hey, this mountain can move, they were looking at a mountain. He's not telling you to walk out there and go, man, if I have enough faith, I'm actually going to look at Mount Everest and move it. He's saying, in the day-to-day, in the daily walk of the community of faith, we can do these things. So the disciples are going, Jesus, this is so far beyond our ability. This isn't natural. And Jesus says, you're right. He says, you need something supernatural. But remember, you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. Remember who enables you to do this. You're made new in Christ. Faith is doing what God says, even if it doesn't seem like it's going to work. That's really faith. I mean, trust that God's way works. Now, be careful, because the attorney in you is going to start debating. Well, you don't know my situation. You don't know, right? I mean, that's just what happens, right? The attorney all of a sudden gets the control pilot, and your body starts... No, faith is saying, no, I trust that God's way works. That's what he's saying to these apostles and disciples. Man, just trust. Have more faith in who I am and what I can do. I can enable you to do forgiveness and walk in mercy in ways you never thought. Then he provides a short parable for protection. Let me just say before this, You have to understand, again, continuously through this, that he's constantly depicting and dividing the Pharisaic life with the life of the children of God. He's trying to show you the life that they live is not like the life the children of God live. The reason I'm saying that is because the religious were proud. The religious didn't think they needed more faith. The religious didn't like showing mercy. The religious loved to rebuke and they did not forgive. He's showing that you live differently. Followers of Jesus don't act in pious, self-righteous reactions. They're quick to forgive. They're humble. So he gives a short parable as an illustration, verse 7. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come home from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterward will you eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So you also, when you've done all you've been commanded, say, we're unworthy servants we have only done what is our duty <laughs> Jesus is showing the difference between the ways the Pharisees live and the children of God live right? Pharisees were all about the show being paraded in public sat in big chairs in the synagogue had long robes it was all about them The opposite of being humble. And here Jesus shows, he's revealing as God continues to grow you, as God continues to shape you, as God starts doing amazing things in and through your life, be careful. Because what happens is, all of a sudden, you're going to start walking as an oxymoron, you're going to be an arrogant Christian. And you're going to totally forget that all that you have was given as grace, that even your obedience is owned by God. So what he's showing is in this parable is, okay, so this guy is just a guy doing basic chores of the day. This isn't anything big. This is in the, in the culture of the day, basic duties, where he was getting paid to do these things. So he's going, man, the guy was just doing what he should. He was just a humble servant. He was just being obedient. Do, do you think he, he was owed special favors from the master? No. Some of us think that as we grow in godliness, as we grow in our righteousness, that then God owes you favors and you look down on people and not at them on a horizontal level. And he's saying, you're but a servant. It was all grace that enabled you to do any of that. You're totally forgetting how you were purchased. You're totally forgetting how you were able to walk with God. You started out humble, realizing you had nothing, no knowledge, and then you were given it all by Christ and now all of a sudden you walk with spiritual swagger. Right? Right? And he's saying, that's not you. That's the way the Pharisees walk. That's not how the children of God walk. Then you realize, man, we're just doing what Christ has asked us to do. I mean, we're, we're not looking for special favors. We're not putting God in our debt. Right, this is where we have to be so careful that we don't fall back into contract with God in the gospel, right? I say all the time, man, he's entered into a covenant relationship with you. What that means is all that is yours in Christ and all that you have, your security of his love, your security of his forgiveness, your security of your righteousness, all that is welled up in the cross of Christ is solely based upon him. He holds the covenant. So when you rebel, when you're faithless, when you fall, he picks you up and it's sustained by all that he did, right? Contract says, which a lot of us live in, hey, I'll enter into this thing God, you do this, 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 and this, and then I'll do this, this, and this, and as soon as one of us doesn't uphold our end of the bargain, I'm out. So God, as soon as you allow suffering, as soon as you allow this, as soon as you don't do what I see should be done, I'm out, and he's going, man, that's, that's contract living. You're but a humble servant. You didn't gain any of that. You didn't earn any of that. You, you don't deserve any special favors from God for anything that he's done. All that you have, all you've been given is by grace. You're just but an unworthy servant. You've done what your master has asked. You don't put God back in your debt. That's what he's showing them here. He's giving this parable as protection. These are questions that are rhetorical, everybody knows the answer to them. The guy who paid to do the guy what he was supposed to do, he's not volunteering. Of course, he's not going to look for special favors, of course, he's not going to expect something from the master. He's not putting his master in debt. He's simply fulfilling his duty. And so when we live for Jesus, when we honor Jesus, when we walk with Jesus, it's a shift towards I can't believe I get to serve God. I can't believe I get to be a part of redemptive history. I can't believe I get to be a servant in the kingdom. I can't believe I get to forgive people and be an image bearer of God's great forgiveness for me. I can't believe I get to be a walking testimony of mercy and extend mercy to others. It's the shift that happens in the human heart. We're humble servants, and and here's what's so mind-blowing about the gospel, guys, is the Bible tells us that our ruler, our master, our king, Jesus, with full authority, who is rightly due, all honor, glory, and praise, became a servant right, Matthew 10, or Mark 10, 45, right, he didn't come to be served, but he came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He exuded this life, he extended forgiveness. Jesus is a high priest who knows what it feels like to be sinned at over and over and over and over. He's a high priest who knows what it's like to be belittled He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to be scorned. He knows what it's like to be mocked. He knows what it's like to have his own family think he's a basket case because he's on the mission of God. Here is the hard, serious, raw truth. We are the ones who did that to Jesus, the servant. We are the ones who scorned. We are the ones who mocked. We are the ones who belittled and he came to us more than seven times a day and said, I forgive you, I forgive you, I forgive you, I forgive you, and he walks in mercy in our repentance. He shows grace, he rebukes us in love, and he walks in grace, and he forgives us again. It's a profound, profound reality that the rebuke we all deserved truly, Jesus took for us in the cross of Christ. the rebuke we should have gotten was wrath eternally falling on us in the torments of hell. And he said, no, I'll spare you. I'll protect you from that rebuke and I'll give you forgiveness in Christ and I'll lavish you with my cross and my work. And if we repent, he says we can be forgiven. If you turn from your sin and turn to this Jesus who took the rebuke for you, and suffered and lived a life you couldn't live and died and paid your debt in full and doesn't hold you in his debt and raises you back a newness of life and gifts you his righteousness, then he says you have the ability now to walk as I walk and live as I live as we ask him, Lord, increase our faith. Let's ask him for the help to do that this morning. God, would you help us to increase our faith? Would you help us, Lord, to grow in what it means and what it looks like to be a living, walking, image bearer of you? Father, would you form us as a people, as a faith family, ones that so see and love one another that it's birthed from a place where we see what happens when sin is full grown, that we would lovingly, rightfully, truthfully, lovingly, humbly, boldly engage, brothers and sisters, and welcome engagement ourselves so that we might walk in greater newness of life we might continue to see more of the glories that are in the cross of Jesus Christ. Would you help us to be a people that are forgiving? Would you help us to be a people that are marked by humility? God, would you help us to release people from being in our debt? So I know there are people this morning that are thinking of faces, they're thinking of situations, they're thinking of actual scenarios that only bring about deep pain and deep rage and deep hurt. God, would you mend that in Christ? Would you increase their faith in what happened in the cross of Jesus Christ for them so that you might enable them the ability to do supernaturally what they cannot do humanly? Father, those that are in rebuke towards you in their sin, who have not repented of sin, who have not trusted in the free offer of mercy in Christ, God, would you give them the ability to do that this morning? God, would you bring about faith in their hearts? Would they see you for who you are and all of your glory and all of your beauty? Would they repent of sin and turn to you in great salvation? Father, thank you that we have such a great savior. Father, help us to live and remember that daily drawing strength from you. In Jesus' name, amen.